you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and community intersect, because it's good to be well endowed. And on this episode, we have another wilderness adventure for you, where we learn about one of Alberta's most misunderstood animals, the bat. But first, our correspondent Chris Chang-Yen Phillips brings us another installment of his history series. Yeah, it's been a year now since the cannabis prohibition ended in Canada, which you might remember we talked about last year on the podcast with the Honourable Anne McClellan. Which got us thinking about an Edmonton landmark that straddled both sides of alcohol prohibition here. Chris helped us figure out how an iconic local brewery survived what by all rights should have been the end of their business. Here's Chris. If you walk through the brewery district in Edmonton's Oliver neighbourhood, You'll notice that the only building with character in history, the only one worth looking at that isn't temporary garbage, the only one that was clearly built to last, is the old Molson Brewery. But the funny thing is that it wasn't built by Molson, and the last bricks were laid on the eve of Prohibition in Alberta, which is also strange to think about today. How did a brand new brewery ride out almost a decade of Prohibition in this province and last long enough to become the landmark that defines a whole commercial district? So let's back up. Who built the place? It was the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company. The owner also owned the Strathcona Hotel down on White Ave. This new brewery was built in 1913, and Prohibition came into effect in 1915, just two years after that. It's kind of hard to understand why Prohibition came about today. Reading about the temperance movement feels like reading telegrams from another planet. But here are some things that I've learned. Journalist and historian James H. Gray wrote a book about Prairie Prohibition called Booze. And one thing he mentions about this time that really surprised me is a lot of men would stop at the bar on their way home on payday, which is not unheard of today, but you've got to picture whole towns where most of the guys are getting paid at the same time once a month, and they're all getting paid by check. And they don't get off work until after the banks have closed. A lot of them have a wife and kids at home waiting on that money to buy groceries and stuff. So if the banks are closed, who's going to cash your check that night? The hotel bars. And if you're going to stop at the bar to cash your check and buy a drink, well, it's understandable that it became tradition to buy a round of whiskeys for the boys from work, too. This was huge business. Gray has this anecdote about a guy named George Vivian who ran the Stockyards Hotel in Winnipeg. And George would prep for his payday rush by walking to the bank to pick up cash and then walking a mile back from the bank carrying $5,000. Somehow he never got robbed. And this hard drinking culture at the time legitimately became a serious problem. Some men really were drinking away whole paychecks. And in the seven years leading up to Prohibition, convictions for drunkenness tripled in Alberta. So whatever you might think of banning the bar, the temperance movement wasn't just a bunch of pious busybodies trying to stop guys from having a good time. Maybe partly that, but not all that. So how did the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company survive till Prohibition ended in the 1920s? I'd heard rumors that they sold beer for export, It wasn't unprecedented at the time for breweries in Canada to find a legal loophole to let them sell alcohol to other provinces or to the states. 
but I didn't find any evidence that the Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company specifically tried that. The one thing I was able to find a good source on was that they sold temperance beer. The provincial legislation in Alberta actually allowed you to buy very light beer as long as you had a prescription from a doctor or a druggist. The company advertised their beer as a health product. They had an ad in the Calgary Eye Opener in 1922, for example, that said, Edmonton beer is the right beverage to build up strength, health, and happiness. Oh yes, and it adds, complies with government regulations. In 1918, they took out an ad in a French paper, L'Union, that said basically, try the temperance beverages of Edmonton beer and Imperial Stout, refreshing and nutritious. My favorite is this 1922 ad that says, Edmonton beer is a mild, admittedly useful beverage, the real means of temperance. The percentage of alcohol is a mere incident and serves to stimulate the digestive activity of the stomach, while its food value is of the highest order. Maybe they took out all these ads to counteract the bad press they got from that time that the police charged them with a breach of the Liquor Act for selling temperance beer that was stronger than the prescribed percentage of 2.5%. To be honest, it looks like they hardly suffered at all from Prohibition. A few years in, they only had to lay off about a quarter of their workforce. And when Prohibition ended in 1925, they were strong enough to keep brewing there for decades. Eventually, they sold the building to Molson. Now, Prohibition had some impact on reducing some of the wild drunkenness and social disorder, but we also know people were bootlegging and making moonshine and buying alcohol of unknown origin and unknown strength and hoping it didn't make them go blind. So how did our ancestors get it so wrong? Why were they so uptight about having a couple drinks? Well, maybe they didn't think so differently from us. Prohibition lasted in Prince Edward Island until 1948. And under the Indian Act, First Nations folks couldn't legally buy alcohol until 1985. And really, until 2018, buying pot in Canada was just like buying bootlegged alcohol. People bought it from anonymous sources, knew very little about its content or strength, found ways to get a prescription for pretty much the same reasons. Moral concern about society endorsing a vice. Consider how we talk about safe consumption sites for harder drugs today. Our provincial government is ideologically opposed to their existence, and they're conducting a review that intentionally excludes studying any of the health or safety benefits of these places. All of which is to say, I guess, maybe the past isn't such a distant planet. Thanks to Chris Chang and Phillips for that glimpse into the life of the Molson Brewery, aka the old Edmonton Brewing and Malting Company building. All right, let's get into the next story. Elizabeth, how do you feel about bats? I think they're a little misunderstood, but I really don't know enough about bats. Well, this next story will take us to the home of one bat colony, where we will find out more about this arguably cute creature, and about a quickly spreading syndrome that is putting them in danger. That's right. Journalist Marion Roberts had joined us over the summer as an intern. And while she was with us, she fearlessly ventured into the woods late at night to bring us the story. Over to you, Marianne. Thanks, Elizabeth. This story is all about bats but not the scary, caught-in-your-hair, Dracula shape-shifting bats of horror movies. This story is about our bats, the long-living mammals that live quietly nearby and help keep the mosquito population in check. Our bats are being threatened by a terrible fungus that has devastated bat populations throughout eastern Canada and the U.S., a fungus that is rapidly making its way west. To tell this story, we're going to introduce you to two people. They're both named Corey, and they both know a lot about bats. Corey Lawson is an associate conservation scientist in Castle, British Columbia, so we had to reach her by phone. Yeah, I'm Corey Lawson with Wildlife Conservation Society Canada. I'm a bat specialist with them, um, having worked with them now for um, just a little under 10 years. 
While she's only been with the Wildlife Conservation Society for just under 10 years, she has been researching bats for over 20. We asked Corey to share her favorite thing about bats. Well, I, you know, I think there's so many fascinating things about bats. It's actually hard to nail down just one. You know, I, I teach a lot of acoustic classes, and so people are always fascinated to understand how it is that um, that bats echolocate and and don't deafen themselves because the sound is very loud and and they can you know actually disconnect their ears ten times a second to be able to hear their own echoes and you know just just they're long lived I mean the fact that a bat can live thirty forty years in Alberta we we know a bat that was almost forty years old and we knew that because um, a band had put been put on her when when uh, she was already an adult actually so she could have even been older and they reproduce very slowly. You know, they're one young per year, 50% chance that pup won't make it through the year. Uh, so they're, they're actually more like grizzly bears or, you know, other large mammals compared to, you know, to, uh, to small mammals. They're not anything like rodents in any way and not even genetically. <laughs> you know, they're, they're more related to us, more closely related to, to humans and primates than they are to rodents. So that's Corey Lawson. And we'll also introduce you to Corey Olson. He is the program coordinator at the Alberta Community Bat Program, a program of the Wildlife Conservation Society. They work closely with other bat action teams in BC and Alberta to collect data to better understand the role bats play in an ecosystem and how to best protect them. This Corey works here in Alberta, and he took us on a bat walk through Glory Hills, also known in the Cree language as Muskiki Muskinau, which means medicine trail. Corey walked us down to the bat habitats where a team had gathered to do a bat count, and I had the chance to ask him a few pressing questions. We're at the Glory Hills Conservation Area. It's one of uh, several Edmonton Area Land Trust lands. Uh, this particular property has uh, some great bat habitat. Uh, there's uh, large wetlands uh, and old forest, which uh, is uh, really good quality habitat for bats. And there are two bat houses, and uh, based on a pile of guano below the bat house, uh, we know that they are being well used at the moment. So there's a team down at the bat house right now that are set up to uh, count bats as they fly out uh, after sunset uh, to begin their foraging boats. Right at about sunset, the bats will fly out uh, to start their evening activities and they all tend to leave at about the same time. So one of the ways we monitor bat populations is uh, to count the bats as they leave uh, their roost and from that we can get an indication of uh, how many bats are in that structure and then we can monitor it over several years to figure out how the population is changing. Naturally, bats would roost in trees and particularly really old decaying trees. Uh, in the absence of buildings and bat houses, they would be roosting in uh, places like old woodpecker cavities or knot holes or cracks in the sides of trees or under sloughing bark. And the trees in this area are really old and really large, so this is perfect habitat for bats. Uh, as you can see over there, there's a large wetland uh, that provides food for bats. Uh, so the, the trees provide roosting habitat and the wetland provides their food and water. 
So I understand there are quite a bit of misconceptions and misunderstandings about bats in the view of the general public. What are a few things that the public should know about bats? Uh, well, uh, a lot of people are concerned that bats are dangerous, uh, that they have lots of diseases, uh, and that they're going to cause other problems, get caught in their hair. Uh, most of those are misconceptions. Uh, bats are no more dangerous than any other animal. Uh, they occasionally have disease, but so do most animals. And if people leave bats alone, uh, there's really very little risk that they will ever get bitten by a bat. And aside from bats being super cool and awesome, why is the conservation of bats important in general? Well, bats uh, worldwide uh, comprise about a quarter of mammal species. Uh, they're the t one of the top predators of insects that are out flying at night. Uh, so they're really important for maintaining healthy ecosystems. Uh, they're a really important predator of uh, agricultural pests. Uh, they're an important predator of biting insects like mosquitoes and forest pests such as the forest tent caterpillar. Uh, so if we were to lose bats, uh, we would lose a really important means of controlling uh, insects. So that's interesting. We were kind of talking about some misconceptions about bats. People are scared of them. They think they might be harmful, but in reality, they're actually a good thing for the public, right? Yeah, bats have been estimated in North America to be worth billions of dollars uh, for providing organic control of insects. Uh, so they're very important for our economy and for maintaining healthy ecosystems. And they're an important part of biodiversity. So if we were to lose bats, uh, we would lose a significant portion of, of uh, the biodiversity we have in Alberta. So Corey, what exactly is the Alberta Community Bat Program? It's a program we started in 2015. It's a program of Wildlife Conservation Society Canada. Uh, we began it in response to the continuing spread of white-nose syndrome. It's a fungus that people introduced to North America a little over 10 years ago. Uh, and it started off in, the, uh, in New York State. And since, uh, since it was first introduced, it spread over three states and seven Canadian provinces. Wow, so how is that impacting bat populations? Uh, in affected regions, uh, some areas have over a 90% population decline of hibernating bats. And it's not in Alberta yet, but it's likely to get here, and we anticipate that uh, similar declines will happen here once they arrive. Is there any ways that we can prevent that from spreading or from happening here in Alberta? Uh, we can slow it down by preventing people from uh, uh, bringing contaminated gear into bat habitats. Uh, but for the most part, it's being spread bat to bat, so there's not a lot we can do. And what happens when a bat um, contracts white-nose syndrome? What are some of the side effects? Yeah, so the fungus itself doesn't directly kill them. It causes, uh, it grows on the bat while they hibernate during the winter. And it causes them to come out of hibernation uh, to fight off the infection. And they arouse from hibernation more frequently. Uh, they deplete their fat stores and then they end up starving to death. White nose syndrome has depleted bat populations in eastern Canada. Let's take a pause from the bat walk and go back to conservation scientist Corey Lawson, who has researched how white nose syndrome affects bats and what we might do. Yeah, so white nose syndrome is a disease um, that just affects bats, and it's a special um, cold-loving fungus that infects them. And that fungus starts to grow on their skin while they hibernate. Um, as you probably know, most fungi like cold, damp places, and unfortunately, that's where bats overwinter. 
So when they go into hibernation to make it through the winter, when there's no insects to eat, they're lowering their body temperature to the same temperatures or surroundings. And in a cave, that's usually just a few degrees above freezing. And that's where this fungus grows really well. And the fungus literally starts to eat holes through their wings it it actually um, digs into the skin and consumes the skin and and unfortunately that means that if a bat happened to make it to the end of the winter when they go to fly they probably can't because their wings are damaged but in many cases a bat doesn't even make it to the end of winter because they um, they warm up their bodies they come out of hibernation very frequently trying to groom this fungus off and jump start their immune system to try to fight off the infection and they burn through so much of their precious stored fat that they often starve before the end of the winter. And on top of that, if that doesn't kill them, uh, there's some physiological problems uh, that actually end up happening because of um, the disruption to the to the wings. And so there's kind of three ways that bats can die with white nose syndrome. And and so we have seen just massive devastation in the east where this fungus has taken hold. We asked Corey to walk us through what the impact of white nose syndrome has been. So in the East, what has happened is, you know, we've we've basically seen millions of bats die um, because of the big piles of bats that are seen in the hibernacula. How many bats have actually died is probably substantially more. I mean, we actually lost track of of counting years ago um, because we don't know much about uh, the populations of bats other than than the uh, hibernacula that were being monitored in the eastern U.S. Um, And there's been a lot of anecdotal reports of increased insect um, populations in areas where bats have um, been hit hard and, and populations have plummeted in the east. Um, unfortunately, it also seems that municipalities and, and agriculture and so on has just automatically responded with increased pesticide use. So it's really hard to nail down exactly what has happened. We know bats are critical for the ecosystem. We know that they are a primary consumer of nighttime insects, and that includes a lot of you know, forest pests and agricultural pests and so on. Um, and, and so it makes sense that if we get a m- massive decline in bats, we're going to have a, a rise in insects. But in society nowadays, that's often very quickly followed by an increase in pesticide use. But all of this is still being figured out. There's still a lot of, of work to do to understand the impact uh, that the, that's been on the ecosystem in, in even human health in areas where white nose syndrome has killed a lot of bats over the last decade. Now that we understand what bats could be facing with the spread of white nose syndrome, let's go back to counting bats at the Glory Hills Conservation Site. So we're standing out here at a bat house waiting for some of these bats to fly out. Um, what exactly is a bat condo? What can you tell me about that? We're, uh, we're here on at the Glory's Hill site and there is a rocket box uh, behind me. Uh, the rocket box could hold about 300 bats. And then there is another uh, uh, unique uh, bat house uh, style beside it. Uh, and that one probably could hold about 100. And uh, just looking at it, uh, we've, uh, we've inspected it just a little while ago and there's about 10 to 20 bats in that one. Uh, but we'll get an accurate count of how many bats are in that bat house and how many bats are in the rock or in the yeah in the rocket box uh, as soon as they start flying out. That's insane because these bat houses do not look like they can hold a hundred bats. That's insane. 
Yeah, so some of the trees uh, in the province, uh, such as these uh, large balsam poplar that we passed on the way in, they could hold about 400 bats. Oh. In a, if there was a deep crack in the tree, they could hold about 400 bats. Uh, the building, uh, such as the one we passed, could potentially hold over a thousand bats. Uh, we do know that there's building roosts in Alberta that have over a thousand bats in them. And we do know that some bat houses in Alberta have uh, well over 300 bats living in them. So there is potential for very large groups. They're probably little brown myotis, uh, which are one of the more gregarious species we have in the province. So they're forming some of the largest groups of any bats we have in Alberta. Uh, and over a thousand individuals uh, in their colony would not be unrealistic, but most bat houses would only hold about 300. Uh, so if there was over a thousand, they would have to be spread among multiple bat houses. So it's about 10, 11 p.m. right now. When do you think we'll start seeing a few bats coming out pretty soon here? Bats could leave as early as sunset. They very rarely leave before sunset. And quite often they wait for a few minutes after sunset until the light levels get low enough uh, where they can safely leave. If they leave when it's too bright out, uh, predators such as magpies or crows might, might take them out. Uh, so it's fairly important that they wait until it's dark enough. Did you want to set up a bat detector so that we could hear what they're sounding like? Yeah, that'd be great. That's not what they sound like. <laughs> <laughs> this one's a little louder, so it might sound different. Sometimes the bats circle around the bat house multiple times and probably what they're doing is trying to coax out their friends so that they can go feeding together. So right now we are watching one particular bat. Uh, he just came out of the bat house. He's been circling around a few times like Corey mentioned, probably trying to coax his friends to come out so they can go feeding. And we actually just saw him peek right back into the house. We're using two different kinds of bat detectors. This one's a frequency division bat detector, and the other one's a full spectrum bat detector, and the full spectrum one will give better recordings. So we're starting to see the bats flying out of the house now, and it is so cool. <laughs> it's very cool to see the bats coming out and circling around their house, and even cooler to get to hear them. Corey told us more about why bat counts like these are important. It started to rain a bit, so you'll hear a bit of background noise while we're hiding under the umbrellas. So one of the problems we have with managing bat populations is that uh, until very recently there have been no programs for monitoring bat populations. Uh, so all of our bats really could be plummeting towards extinction and for the most part we would have no idea that that's happening. Uh, in the case of white-nose syndrome the population decline is so dramatic that uh, it's really easy to observe because it's going from uh, a fairly robust population down to almost nothing. Uh, so in that case, we can uh, tell that they're not doing well, but for the most part, we have no idea. And one of the things we're doing is uh, participating in the North American Bat Monitoring Program. And, and the Edmonton Area Land Trust is a partner 
uh, in that project. So we have detectors that we put out or that the Edmonton Area Land Trust uh, employees and volunteers have put out uh, that is providing some important information for monitoring bat populations. And there are other sites around Alberta that is contributing to a larger database that can be used to uh, hopefully in the future uh, better determine how our populations are doing. Have you seen an impact at all um, through those types of programs or is it still too soon to tell? Uh, the North American Bat Monitoring Program only began a few years ago and there's not a sufficient data set currently to evaluate population changes. Uh, but hopefully over the next few years that will become a possibility. What's, what's the goal that you hope to see? How could you um, evaluate the level of impact that you are making or that you hope to make? Well, long term, what we're hoping is that we can uh, protect our bat population long enough for them to withstand some of the pressures that are impacting their population. Uh, once white-nose syndrome gets here, it's quite possible we'll lose most of our bat population, but there will be some, in all likelihood, that are resistant to white-nose syndrome. And it's really important that we have the foundation laid right now so that those few that are able to survive can reproduce successfully and rebuild the population. And hopefully, by facilitating that recovery, we can uh, prevent uh, a continent-wide extinction. The impact is huge, and we're still working to understand the effects on the broader ecosystem. It would be very easy to lose hope in the face of something as devastating as white-nose syndrome. But Corey Lawson, the conservation scientist, may have found a way to slow the spread of white-nose syndrome. Here is what she discovered. So we have developed a probiotic for, um, for bats that live in buildings at this point. Um, building roosting bats are our most vulnerable species that we know of in the, in the West. We probably have many more vulnerable species, but all of that is yet to, to be discovered. Uh, what we do know, based on what we've seen in the East, is that our common building roosting um, myotis, a little brown, and likely than the Yuma myotis, um, are in trouble. They're probably going to be affected by white-nose syndrome. We've actually already seen mortalities in Washington state from, from white-nose syndrome. So we are targeting those um, particular species at this point, knowing we have large roosts of these throughout uh, Western Canada. We know these roosts because of community bat programs like the Alberta Community Bat Program, like BC um, Community Bat Program. They have identified large roosts where we have these species. And these are sort of untapped resources. We can go in now and try to save large numbers of, of bats. And so to do that, we started looking around at what is it that would allow um, bats to fight off the fungus that causes white-nose syndrome. And we noticed that there's been some very positive, even actually <laughs> as early as last week, some more really positive um, feedback coming, coming from the use of probiotics for fighting off fungi, and in particular then the, the white-nose syndrome fungus. So a couple years ago, we started uh, swabbing bats throughout Western Canada in Alberta and BC and worked with a lab at a Thompson Rivers University and McMaster University cultured the um, the bacteria that were coming off the wings and looked for ones that naturally would prevent the growth of the white-nose fungus and we found some. We've now developed a final what we're calling our final cocktail which is really four um, anti-white-nose syndrome bacteria that are actually naturally found in soils in Western Canada and appear on some bat wings. 
So here in the West now, we're just trying to make sure that those good bacteria get onto as many of our vulnerable bat species as possible to try to allow them um, to survive the white nose uh, fungus. And this is all going to happen in summer. They're going to build up um, bacteria, new kind of a new microflora of, of bacteria on their wings, just kind of like we would eat yogurt to try and change the microflora of our gut to incorporate good bacteria. Same idea then. It will be put on, on the bat's wings. They will go off into hibernation. And when they run across the white nose um, fungus, that fungus will have a hard time taking hold on the wings. And that's um, hopefully enough to allow them to survive the winter. Easy peasy. Just put some of that good bacteria onto the bat's wings. Well, onto hundreds and hundreds of bat wings. Wait, how are we going to do that? Yeah, so this was a bit of a challenge. We've been trying to think, you know, for the last couple of years, how it is that we can make this feasible. It's got to be cheap, logistically feasible, ideally something that landowners can just help us out with. We've been testing many things, and I think we're there. Um, we have developed a, um, a clay dust applicator. So it's simply just um, a squeeze ball that dusts um, clay, powdered clay, uh, like the, that potters would use, for example, up into um, bat boxes or, or roost structures where bats will roost. And that the, the, the bats then in there will just go in and out of their roost and naturally pick up this fine dust of clay. Now, what's attached to those little particles of clay are those four bacteria that are our probiotic. And, um, and the, the dust then will just naturally allow the, the bacteria to take hold on the wings. It's very much like bats that roost in rock crevices. They can go in and out of the rock crevice. Over time, they pick up bacteria from the soil. We asked Corey what the general public should be aware of when it comes to white nose syndrome. The issue we have here in the West is that we've got large um, maternity colonies that we know of in the summer, but we don't have any equivalent of that in the winter. Uh, so it's not like in the East where they could walk into caves in the winter and see big piles of dead bats and know that they have white nose syndrome. Uh, here in the West, we uh, don't know where most of our bats hibernate and we have no such thing as this giant cave full of bats. And so what's really important to us to know if we have white nose syndrome and where we have white nose syndrome and what kind of impacts we have is to really have the public be our ears and well, I guess in this case our eyes on the ground. So they would go around and, and if they notice bats on the ground, they would definitely need to contact, um, like a local uh, conservation officer or, or the provincial veterinarian to report those and hopefully collect those so that we can tell if white nose is around because those bats might have um, some of the fungus on their wings. Uh, also important then is for people who know that they have bats in their attic or bats in their bat boxes or so on to be able to kind of keep tabs on those and then let us know if there's at one point like a missing colony because if we have missing colonies then that's another sign that bats have not survived the winter and haven't come back and and so we're really depending on the public to to help us in understanding if, if white nose is here and what its impact might be on, on especially our building roosting populations so there is a bit of hope that we might be able to slow the spread of white nose syndrome using probiotics and as you just heard they will need help from all of us Luckily, the Alberta Community Bat Program offers ways that we can all get involved. 
So I understand there is a program called the Citizen Science Project. What can you tell me about that? Uh, so the Citizen Science Program is, uh, it, it's a program we're offering, or that we run where we're encouraging people to submit reports of bats that they have in, in and around their property. If people find evidence of bats roosting in their buildings or in a bat house, they can fill out a report and submit it to us along with a guano sample. And we can compile a database uh, from across the province that can be used to better understand the habitats that bats are using and uh, to monitor uh, population, potential population changes. Uh, the guano sample uh, is important because from that we can uh, send it for genetic testing. We can determine what species is living in their uh, building or bat house. So if people want to get involved in the Citizen Science Project, which we recommend that they do or at least look into, where can they go for more information? If people want more information about the Citizen Science Program, they can visit our website, albertabats.ca slash citizen science. We have instructions for how to get involved with the Citizen Science Program. We have instructions for how to collect uh, guano or bat poop samples and how to send it to us. Uh, and they can see uh, some of the results from the Citizen Science Program, including what species have been found across the province uh, living in buildings and bat houses. So let's talk about managing bats in human communities. If someone finds a bat, what should they do? Uh, if someone finds a bat, uh, the important thing is not to touch it with bare hands. Uh, bats uh, are not particularly uh, disease-ridden, as uh, people often fear, but we do know that some bats uh, do have rabies, uh, so we want to make sure that people don't handle them with their bare hands. Uh, and then uh, there's, there's really uh, never a reason to kill a bat um, unless it's brought to a professional that uh, can assess it for, uh, for injuries or disease. Uh, so what we encourage people to do, if they find a bat, uh, they can uh, use a box or something to remove it from their house, if that's the case, or they can uh, use a, a stick to gently uh, place it out of harm's way. And uh, in all likelihood, it'll leave again the following night. One of the important messages that we're trying to convey to the public is that uh, it's really important that we're properly managing the bats that live around our communities. Uh, in the case of little brown myotis, which are one of the endangered species we have in Canada because of white-nose syndrome, uh, in developed regions of the province, the majority of the population uh, very well could be living in buildings and other, and other structures that people have built. Uh, so how we manage those bats that are living in those structures is really important for, for protecting bat populations. Uh, we have developed uh, several guidelines that are available on our webpage that aims to improve how we're managing bats. And one of the important messages that we're trying to get out is that if there are bats in buildings, uh, they don't need to be evicted right away in most cases. If there's bats inside the living quarters, we don't recommend that they be allowed to stay there. But most of the bats are living in areas away from people. Uh, so if they just leave those bats alone until they leave on their own, in the fall. Uh, typically by November most bats have left buildings to go find a suitable place to hibernate. Uh, so if they just wait until the bats leave they can uh, make the repairs uh, to the building and, uh, and it's unlikely that any bats will be harmed. In many cases bats don't need to be kicked out of buildings at all. Uh, they can safely continue using them with few problems for the homeowners or the bats. So as we waited for the night to get darker and for those first bats to coax out their friends the rain started falling pretty hard. Um, we're basically deciding if it's raining too heavy to continue <laughs> at this time. 
which is seeming to be leaning towards yes. <laughs> um, but we. <laughs> at some point the bats are not going to come out so our counts are a little bit of an underestimate of the number of bats in the bat house <laughs> so how many bats did we end up counting so i got 29 at this box oh 19. i got 30 for sure, for sure. okay nice. yeah, so that's pretty good so almost 50 bats and that was it for our bat walk adventure we got to see and hear a few of these tiny creatures and got to learn about what makes each of them so important to our ecosystem. These bat walks are another activity offered by the Alberta Community Bat Program, and there are lots of other ways to get involved. I encourage you to visit their website at albertabats.ca. Now we've been jumping between our bat walk with Corey Olson and our phone call with Corey Lawson. But before we say goodbye to each of them, we asked them to share any closing thoughts. I think it's really important that people become aware of the importance of bats, uh, that they dispel some of the unfounded fear that has led people to, to make bad decisions for managing bats. Uh, we know that thousands of bats uh, are needlessly eradicated from buildings every year and we're hoping to end that. And spreading the word about the importance of bats and wildlife in general is really important for ensuring that our wild populations are able to persist uh, for future generations. One thing I, I would um, mention, I guess, is, is that, you know, for, uh, for the West, we still have time. <laughs> this is, you know, a disease that is inevitable. It, the bats spread it themselves. It's coming. It's going to spread to Alberta. It's already in Manitoba. It's going to spread to BC. It's already in Washington. So the question is, what are we going to do with the amount of time we have left, this unknown but very limited window of, of time. And uh, if we don't do anything, if we can't actually prevent this, this disease, and we are going to see uh, probably the same devastation we've seen in the East at this point, we don't, we don't know and we don't have any reason to suspect it'll be different. It might be a little slower, but can we live without our bats? You know, that's, that's a big question. And I don't, I don't think we we can it will definitely be um, a changed ecosystem and we're still trying to figure out how those changes are affecting um, the economy how they're affecting human health and, and so on the cascade is huge it could be all the way down to affecting um, you know fish populations in addition to, to plants trees and, and and so on and I think those are going to be felt for a very long time because uh, to get back to our current level of, of bat populations, we're talking hundreds of years, given their slow reproductive rates. And so all of this just means that we should probably do as much as we can for bats um, as soon as we can so that we can try to minimize the, the impacts. And getting that message out and, and maybe even talking to politicians about the importance of bat conservation will really help us at this sort of critical point in time when we are hoping to be able to reduce the impact um, or maybe even prevent um, white-nose syndrome here in the West. Thank you so much to Corey Olson, Program Coordinator at the Alberta Community Bat Program for guiding us on the Bat Walk. And thanks to conservation scientist Corey Lawson for telling us all about white-nose syndrome. We will have a bunch of links in our show notes so you can find out more about our guests and how you can help with our local bats. And we'll have links so you can find out more about Edmonton's Prohibition Past. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you liked it. If you did, be sure to share it with your friends. And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are a big help. And it's always great to hear your feedback. 
Speaking of sharing your thoughts, you can follow us on Facebook, too. Check out the pictures of our adventures and tell us what you think. Thanks again for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonking. Until, Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.